Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. We get to send hope to the hopeless. What a privilege it is. Just last week I had lunch with some of our network church planners and we just launched another church plant in central Detroit uh, three, four weeks ago now. And on week three, they're already baptizing new believers. Amen. On week three, there was no room left in the place that they had rented. So some of the core team stood at the back while the worship service unfolded. The young pastor who's pastoring this church, Crown and Anchor it's called, and uh, in Detroit, was uh, floating about six inches off the ground when we talked. I felt like I should just pull him back to earth. He was so excited, and we're excited with them. God is planting a church on Wayne State campus, and I talked to the church planter who's working with that team of students. Uh, many of them are coming to faith in Christ. Many of them turning from their religious backgrounds that are multinational, and I'll leave it at that. God is at work doing amazing things, and we get to be part of that. Thank you, Lord. My family and I have been a part of, we have lived in Canada-U.S. border cities now for the last 30 years. Uh, Previously in the most gorgeous Niagara Falls, Ontario, and now even the more gorgeous, Windsor, Ontario, <laughs> for the last 15 years. And that, you know, as a result, I was thinking about this the other day, as a result of our close proximity to the U.S. border, I, I have inadvertently become a fan of, of U.S. college football. And in fact, I, I like college football more than I like professional football. Because those guys are playing for the game while the other guys are playing for the big dollars. And every year, the so-called Monday morning quarterbacks have this ongoing argument about defense and offense. You know, defense wins championships, and others will declare a good defense is a good offense. And the battle goes on every year, every Monday morning. But actually, both offense and defense are important in football, are they not? Of course they are. And the same is true in the Christian faith. Believers must be effective on the offensive. We need to know know how to uh, share the good news with with people who need to hear about Jesus. And and we also need to be effective on defense. We need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, right? And so both are important. In our study of the book of Acts so far, we have discovered that the Apostle Paul is very strategic in his engagement of large centers like Corinth and Ephesus and and Athens and and even Jerusalem. So in those places, he's on the offense. He's pushing ahead with the gospel. But now, as we come to Acts chapter 21 and 22, we we see Paul take up a defensive position. The, The apostle becomes a prisoner on account of the gospel, And the rest of his ministry recorded in Acts is basically a set of reactions against opposition. So now he's on defense. And both are important. 
before we reach the end of the book of Acts, we'll actually read five speeches from the Apostle Paul. Five times he defends himself and the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we look at our very long passage today, starting with Acts 21, 17, we will consider Paul's first defense. So your Bibles or your Bible apps are open to Acts chapter 21. And as we make our way through this text, we will examine, first of all, the humility and love displayed by James and Paul. We're going to start in Acts 21, 17, and we're going to read a lot of verses. We don't often do this, but we're going to do this this morning. Are you with me? Okay. So if you're, if you're with me, say, I'm with you. Good enough. Let's go. Acts 21, 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, Luke, the author of Acts, writes... The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, another one of the apostles, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he, Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Oh, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads." Thus, all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Bit of a strange text, isn't it? Did you follow the story? Let's unpack it a little bit. Let's begin to unpack this. Let's go back now to verses 19 and 20. Because here there is a God-centered celebration. We don't want to miss it. Acts 21, 19. After greeting them... The Apostle Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. See, there's there's an instant party in Jerusalem. As Paul goes in, meets with James and the rest of the elders, tells them what God has been doing among the Gentiles, they go, Woohoo! Yay, God! And there's a celebration. And rightly so. When God works, when He sends hope to the hopeless, when He brings the gospel to light in in, in dark corners of our our culture and our world, there ought to be a celebration. James and Paul, together with the elders, praise God for the victories that were won by the power of God for the sake of the gospel. That's a God-centered celebration in which God gets all the glory and God gets the honor. We also see a gospel-driven plan here. In verses 20 to 26, they said to him, so they're saying, Paul, 
there are many thousands here among the Jews who have believed in Jesus. They are all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. In other words, those Jews who converted to faith in Jesus Christ, they've been told that you teach them to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children anymore or walk according to their customs, which just isn't true. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about this in a few minutes, but this is, this is a rumor. This is not true. Paul was not doing that. Paul did not teach all the Jews to forsake Moses or ignore the law. He did not object to Jewish believers voluntarily following Old Testament ceremonial laws as long as it didn't compromise the gospel. You see, that's where he would draw the line. You want to wear your, your funny black hat and your, your curly? That's fine. Just don't compromise the gospel. And so they come up with a plan in verse 22. What then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you come. Paul, they, they know you're here in Jerusalem. You know, they're going to stir up trouble. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them. Take them to the temple and do the purification rites. And so there were men who were living under this Nazarite vow, which meant that they couldn't eat certain foods and uh, they had to make sure that they weren't defiled by touching anything unclean like a dead body. Uh, and they couldn't cut their hair. So while they were under this vow, they had to, they had to keep very strict ceremonial laws. The vows usually lasted about 30 days. And at the end of the time, they cut their hair and go through this purification rite. So they were saying to Paul, verse 24, Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing. There's nothing to this story that they've been told about you. But that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Say, what is going on here? Paul, who's been set free, Galatians, you know, don't return to another gospel. You're, you're free. You're absolutely free. If you know the Son, the Son will set you free and you'll be free indeed. Why go back to these ceremonial laws? What's at work here? What's at play here? What's the motivation here? I think it's this. I think it's this. Let's do whatever we got to do to keep preaching the gospel. Let, let's do what we have to do in order to win a hearing for the gospel. Right? Long hair, short hair, shaved heads. Who gives a rip? As long as we get to keep preaching the gospel. It doesn't matter how much hair you got or don't got. And I'm, I'm glad about that. I'm, I'm quite happy about that. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I, I, remember, I remember a guy in a, in a former church, let me say this, a former church, who came to me one day, very perturbed, said to me, Pastor, you see that young guy back in the back row wearing a baseball hat? I said, oh, I do. He said, don't you think you should go and tell him to take it off? I said, no. Well, you don't? You think it's okay to wear a baseball hat in church? I said, brother, I would rather have him sitting in the back row wearing a baseball hat listening to the gospel than standing out behind the garage smoking a joint. You see, I don't think it, 
necessarily matters how we wear our hair or whether we wear a suit and tie and jacket or a pair of jeans and a, and a really nice red check <laughs> shirt. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them. I'm going to get myself into trouble. And went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering he presented for each one of them. So this seemed like a really good plan. And, and it was a gospel-driven plan, you see. Paul is, is always thinking about the gospel. How, 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 can I, how can I get a hearing for the gospel? How can I share the gospel in this situation, in this culture, in this time, in this place? He, he's all about that. Paul is literally willing to do anything that it takes for the sake of the gospel as long as he doesn't compromise the gospel, you see. There is a line, and we shan't cross it. But there's a whole lot of freedom that comes before that. So he humbles himself, he takes the men into the Jewish temple, purifies himself and these four guys, and pays for it, (laughs) just for the sake of the gospel. It's a gospel-driven plan, full of grace, that silenced all the rumors and paved the way for Paul to do even more evangelism. And I like that. Humility and love were driving the agenda all the way. And so I I think we need to be a little more flexible. When it comes to ministering the gospel in different cultures. And, and, And dare I say, even in different generations. You know, how I communicate the gospel when I go to a senior's home is different than how I communicate the gospel when I'm talking to senior high students. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Let's be flexible as we, as we tell people about Jesus. Humility and love should drive the agenda, but... Let me be quick to say we must never compromise the gospel or the core values of our faith. We must never participate in sin when we are attempting to reach people for Jesus. Is that clear? Like I am not going to go with my neighborhood buddies who love to go out on a Friday night binge drinking and get absolutely rip-snoring drunk so they have to Uber home. I'm not going to do that. But if they have a ball hockey game or they want to go to the Spitz game together, I'm all in. So there, there is a line that we should not cross. We, we cannot compromise the gospel and we must not participate in sin when we're trying to reach unreached people with the good news of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Thank you. Be flexible, but be careful. So from its focus on humility and love, Acts chapter 21 now turns to hostility and lies that were displayed in this Jewish crowd, this mob that was forming here in verses 27 to 36. Acts 21, 27, when the seven days of purification were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled the holy place. Well, those are fighting words. 
For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed. They didn't know. They had no evidence whatsoever, but they supposed. How much trouble have you gotten into in your life because people supposed things about you? I feel another sermon coming on. <laughs> Verse 30, then all, the, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. In other words, they created a mob. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, don't miss that, word came to the tri- tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So Paul is getting beat up, but he's the one that gets arrested. Interesting justice system there. Verse 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, Paul was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So this isn't just, you know, these aren't just uh, Walmart shoppers who are getting a little perturbed. (laughs) They are uptight and violent. They're so angry they want to kill him. The mob of the people followed The soldiers who were carrying Paul crying, away with him, away with him. So their wild accusations against him are designed to create mob violence. This was calculated. It's like hiring these professional agitators, you know, to go to protests and stir things up. That's what what this scene is like. Friends, obedience to Jesus very often leads to strong opposition. If you're really living for Jesus and you're declaring that you're all in for Jesus, if you've gone public for Jesus, there'll be opposition. I remember declaring my faith to my family. Back in the Middle Ages when I came to faith in Christ. And initially, I think my family thought, oh, this is just another fad. (laughs) You know, Garth and his things. You know, he's jumping from one thing to the next thing to the next. This is just another thing. And when it didn't wear off and it didn't wear out and it didn't go away, then they got angry. And then some of them were pushing me away, like not physically, but just like, ooh, I don't want to be in your presence and I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. Two weeks ago, I spoke to a young student who's here from India studying. And the people around him, some of the people around him are strong believers. And they were sharing their faith, reading the Bible with him. And he professed his trust and faith in Jesus Christ as a result. And he told me just recently that he was talking with his brother and he told his brother that he's now following Jesus and his brother is angry at him. And His brother said, what will mother and father do? Mother will cry. She will cry unceasingly. 
that you've, you've lost your mind. I said, what are you going to do? He said, Pastor, I'm going to follow Jesus. You see, following Jesus and being obedient to Jesus sometimes brings opposition. Sometimes it's strong opposition. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what's the word? Persecuted. Not just Hindus who profess faith in Christ, not just Muslims who come to faith in Christ, but all. The Scripture says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in some way or another. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. It's going to happen. It's just going to happen. It's part and parcel of Christian life. Unless, of course, you, 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 know, you join the secret service and you never tell anybody that you're following Jesus. But you can't because that's, you, disciples don't do that. Right? Real disciples of Jesus don't, don't go silent. They go public. So we shouldn't be surprised when intimidation and hate and false accusations come our way. We should not be surprised when people think we've lost our mind because we follow Jesus. Early Christians were often accused of of three things. They were accused of incest, cannibalism, and atheism simply because they greeted one another with a holy kiss, took the Lord's Supper, and refused to worship the emperor. And you can see how those things are remotely linked, right? But see, that's what the world does over and over again. They look at what we do and what we believe and they twist it until it becomes some evil, wicked, terrible thing. Today we're accused of of intolerance and prejudice and bigotry because of our views on things like homosexuality and abortion and marital fidelity and sexual purity and even monogamy. They think we've lost our mind. And so when you are accused, not if, (laughs) not if you're accused, but when you are accused, know that you have an author and perfecter of your faith who has gone before you. He endured the cross, scorning its shame so that you don't have to. So that you can come and stand beside him and he can come and stand beside you and he is with you always, even to the end of the age. He will never leave you or forsake you. And one day, one day, everybody who's uh, mocking you and scorning you and making fun of you and, and, and persecuting you will have to give an account to God. One day there will be a reckoning. Jesus will have the last word. Yes, he will. Let's see what else happens in Paul's defense as we look at verse 37. Acts 21, 37. Here we see honesty and loyalty displayed in Paul's defense. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Wrong prisoner. This guy had something else in mind. 
This was not what Paul had done. Paul replied, I'm, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, sir, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given Paul permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and there was a great hush, and he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And he goes on to share the story of his conversion. He, he tells them about how he put his faith in Jesus Christ and was born again by the Spirit of God. Paul had two purposes in addressing this audience. First, he, he wanted them to hear from his own lips that he was indeed loyal to his Jewish heritage. Remember who he's talking to. He speaks in Hebrew. He's talking to Jews. He's still trying to win a hearing and says, basically, I've been, I've been true to my, my Jewish heritage. And secondly, he wants them to know the facts of his conversion. So he shares his testimony. His life and ministry were not the result of, of his own imagination or his own intelligence or his own wild ideas. No, sir. They were the result of the sovereign, life-giving, transforming grace of God. His life had been shaped by God. His ministry had been shaped by God. And he wanted the whole world to know that. Paul used this defense as an occasion to speak the good news again. The guy's crazy. He uses every opportunity to tell people about Jesus. One of those Jesus freaks. That's another name I carried for many years. What happened to Lino? I oh, a Jesus freak now. Never came down off that one high that, you know, remember when we, you know. Paul used this defense as an occasion to speak about Jesus. Did he defend himself? Well, to some degree, yes. But his primary concern was defending the gospel. Telling people about the good news. And there were many constraints, many limitations on Paul in doing so. I mean, he's a prisoner now, right? He was carried through the crowd by these soldiers. So he's got limitations, time limitations. All kinds of limitations. But he... He preached the good news. He, he shared the gospel. Back in 1960, two men made a bet. There was only $50 on the line, but that wager affected millions of people in the years to come. The first, name was, the first man was named Bennett Cerf, and, and he was the founder of Random House Publishing. The second man was named Theo Geisel. Theo Geisel, you probably know him better as Dr. Seuss. The, the publisher challenged Dr. Seuss to write a children's book using only 50 different words. And Dr. Seuss took him up on the challenge, took him up on the bet. The result was a little book called Green Eggs and Ham. Since its publication, this book has sold more than 200 million copies. And it has become the world's uh, most the best-selling children's book of all time. But there's more to the story. What, what Dr. Seuss discovered was the power of setting constraints, the power of setting limits. See, the publisher had set this limit, 50 words, and they all had to be different. 
But constraints are not the enemy, you see. Restrictions are not the enemy. Limitations are not the enemy. Because every artist has a limited set of tools to work with, right? And every athlete has a limited set of, of, of training resources to work with. Every entrepreneur has a limited amount of, of, of resources or capital to build with. But once you know your constraints, right, then you can work with them. You can work around them. You can work through them. So constraints or limits are not the problem. There were many restrictions, many restraints on the Apostle Paul. But he didn't quit. In the face of opposition, he did not bend. He stood his ground. He, he spoke the truth. He preached the gospel. He, he shared Christ. He didn't quit, even, even with the limitations he had. He kept preaching, and so should we. We should keep sharing the love of Jesus with people who need it. You and I have constraints in sharing the gospel, right? With our friends, our family. You might have limitations at work. You're a public school teacher, and they say, if you mention Jesus in the classroom, you're going to be fired. You're gone. You're out of here. So there's all kinds of limitations that we, that we live with. But we can't quit, and we must not bend. We need to, we need to stand our ground and, and, and share the truth and, and speak in love and, and share the gospel with people because their lives depend upon it. Eternity is at stake, and people need to know. There are lots of authors who would have sat back and complained. 50 words. I can't write a good book for, with 50 words. But Dr. Seuss decided to take the tools he had available with its limitations and make a work of art instead. And so, my friends, let's take what God has given us. Let's take what God has given us along with the limitations and constraints that we have in our lives. Let's take what God has given us and let's share the love of Christ with those around us. I encourage you to bring at least one person with you on Easter Sunday at 8.30 or 10 o'clock. And hopefully some of you will come at 8.30 so we have room at 10 o'clock. <laughs> I encourage you to pray. Pray. Start praying now. We've got three weeks till Easter. Pray that one person that you speak to would respond and come. That you'd be able to pick up one person, one couple, one family on the way to church and bring them with you at 8.30 or 10 o'clock on Easter Sunday. I encourage you to believe God for one friend, one family member, one co-worker, one neighbor to trust in Christ. Why? Because the ordinary people of God, equipped with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and dedicated to the Son of God, can actually, can actually accomplish the mission of God. We can do this. It's not rocket science. God wants to use you to fulfill the Great Commission. To make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we're having a baptism service on April 28th and May 5th. Come. The invitation is now. And teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. That wasn't given to pastors 
and missionaries and people who get paid. It was given to disciples. Are you a disciple? Then you own the Great Commission. Plus one. Plus one. Who's your one? Who will it be? What's her name? What's his name? Plus one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done, we sang. It's an incomparable privilege, Lord, to be your adopted children and your witnesses and to call you Abba, Father. Lord, we were, we were slaves to sin and death and selfishness and fear, but you rescued us through the cross and through the, the sacrifice of Jesus. And now we get to be your witnesses. Now we get to share the love of Jesus with men and women and boys and girls everywhere we go. Anytime we get an opportunity, we can share the love of Jesus with others who need the love of God. Oh, give us your strength, Lord Jesus. Don't let our, don't let our people quit. We, we might get discouraged from time to time, but we can't quit. We've got to keep going. We know that nothing can separate us from your love. So we really have nothing to fear as we share the good news with our friends. Because if God be for us, who can be against us? We pray all of this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.